The name of our podcast, Techsequences, is really a mashup of two words, technology and consequences. We are fascinated by the consequences, intended or unintended, of the internet and related technologies for the way we live, play, and work. We are your hosts, Leslie Daigle and Alexa Rod. We started our careers at the dawn of the internet and have been friends, colleagues, and comrades in arms for the better part of 20 years. In this podcast, we examine the impact internet-related technologies have made or may make in our lives. I'm Alexa Rod. And I'm Leslie Daigle. Welcome to Tech Sequences. Cosmic Links, Exaggerated Lion, Fin7, and The Florentine Banker are not the names of up-and-coming pop sensations. Instead, they are the names of organized criminal gangs operating for profit and with intent to do harm. Cybercrime is increasingly sophisticated, planned, and targeted. In a 2018 study by the Center for Strategic and International Studies, CSIS, in partnership with McAfee, concluded that close to $600 billion is lost to cybercrime each year. That's almost 1% of the global GDP. And for the cyber criminals, it's easy money. That report also notes that cyber criminals have a great risk to payoff ratio. Quote, it is a low risk crime that provides high payoffs. A smart cyber criminal can make hundreds of thousands of dollars, even millions of dollars, with almost no chance of arrest or jail. In the days when highwaymen would attack travelers on horseback on unprotected carriages, the wealthy protected themselves by traveling in numbers and hiring armed outriders. We can't protect our digital data in the same way. Across the globe, people are spending an average of seven hours a day online, and more of our lives are spent online as we rely on network devices and internet access for everything from entertainment, work, living, and even healthcare. Yet despite our dependence on devices, our confidence in their safety and security has faltered as cybercrime continues to grow at an exponential rate. So what can we do to address this increasing threat to our economic and personal safety? Michael Daniel serves as the president and CEO of the Cyber Threat Alliance, CTA, a not-for-profit that enables cyber threat information sharing among cybersecurity organizations. Prior to CTA, Michael served for four years as U.S. Cybersecurity Coordinator, leading U.S. cybersecurity policy development, facilitating U.S. government partnerships with the private sector and other nations, and coordinating significant incident response activities. From 1995 to 2012, Michael worked for the Office of Management and Budget, overseeing funding for the U.S. intelligence community. Michael also works with the Aspen Security Group, the World Economic Forum's Partnership Against Cybercrime, and other organizations improving cybersecurity in the digital ecosystem. Welcome, Michael. Well, thank you for having me. So, Alexa mentioned a number of cyber cyber criminal gangs at the outset. Um, from the from the research that you've done and from your experience, what would you say cyber criminal gangs gangs are, and how have they evolved? Well, I think the the biggest way I can describe it is I think a lot of people have this image of the hacker or even the cyber criminal as this disaffected white dude who still lives in his mother's basement, right? And wears a hoodie and that sort of thing. And that is just not how the cybercrime ecosystem works now. Um, they've cyber criminals are they're smart, they've organized and they've professionalized. They've read their Adam Smith, they've read their Harvard Business School cases, and um, they run things like a business. So now it's a very distributed um, enterprise with um, 
you know, different groups do different things in the ecosystem. And we can sort of, you know, drill down that, drill down into that if you like, but the, it's really very different now, even than it was like 10 years ago. These are very large, very professional operations now. Yeah, I think it's, it's probably important to drill down into that a little bit because, you know, we all like to go about our daily lives and, and just use the, use the World Wide Web seamlessly in our in our activities and think that everybody is just like our neighbor and so on and so forth but really no there are some pretty egregious activities going on and and as you say they're not they're not incidental they're not casual they're very well organized so maybe maybe a little bit more on on that sort of front yeah so when you look at the ecosystem now what you see is that different groups tend to specialize in different things so in fact you'll actually hear if you sort of follow cybersecurity now, you'll start to hear the term initial access brokers, for example. So these are groups and all they do is gain access to, you know, company or organizational networks. And then they sell that access to the next group down the chain. That next group, all they do is go in, do reconnaissance of that network, spread it around and set up the network for being ransomed or have the information stolen or whatever. And then they sell that to the next person down the chain who actually does the, you know, uh, malicious activity, if you will, the, the theft of the data, the ransomware or whatever. And by the way, if they're doing ransomware, they've probably bought the ransomware from somebody else who all they do is supply ransomware or supply malware. Um, and they get a cut of whatever the, the ransom that comes back. Um, and then they actually sell that to a money, you know, transfer. They sell whatever they've stolen. And then they sell that, you know, they they get a, they sell that to a cash out organization who actually moves the cryptocurrency or whatever to someplace where they can, you know, actually get, you know, fiat currency for it. And so the, it's highly, you know, it's, it's very evolved. In other words, you can see the complexity in this. These are very complex business relationships. They, um, the criminals now also, they run help desks, you know, like the malware providers, they have help desks. You, if your malware is not working, you can call them up. They will help you with your malware. I mean, it's, you know, um, I mean, there's kind of this running joke of like, you know, um, you like, where are they getting these help desk people from? And, you know, is that being outsourced to India too? And, you know, the um, it, it's kind of this uh, running joke now in the cybersecurity community, but it's, you know, but there's an underlying truth to it that like the, um, you know, they, these are really more like business operations than they are sort of individual muggers in a dark alley, right? What you're describing is really an ecosystem of um, criminal activity that has probably some legit workers, legit companies that are also part of that um, criminal ecosystem. There's been a lot of discussion lately about data brokers where they basically have access to a lot of data, personal data, um, because data about us is harvested because of our seven hours of activity online every day. So these data brokers are really, they're, they're for-profit companies. However, the consequence of that is that nation states can now go and buy private data from these data brokers. And therefore, think about the long-term consequences, which would be they could target um, specific, highly sensitive um, 
information, such as about, you know, government, um, people in high sensitive positions in the government and figure out ways to manipulate them or to entrap them or to compromise them. So uh, there's a lot of discussion now, obviously, that uh, what are some policies that we ought to put in place? I know you've got a lot of background in policy. Are there specific policy things that you think the federal government should be thinking about right now, like CISO should be thinking about right now and implementing? Oh, there's a very much a wide array of policies, I think. The I think the biggest issue in my mind, when I look at it from the cybersecurity perspective, is that in many ways, you can say that we've we've we in the United States have tried very much a purely voluntary approach for the last 20 or 30 years uh, to cybersecurity. And it has manifestly not gotten us to where we need to go. And there are a few things that we need to start doing, I think, to begin to adjust the market. Um, the market is just not creating the incentives for companies to invest in cybersecurity up to the level that we need as a society. And so I should be clear that this does not mean I think we need to regulate the hell out of everything. That's it's just that we need to have we need to have a more activist approach to creating incentive structures in the market and simply saying that yes private sector companies have an interest in increasing their cybersecurity but it's not a strong enough interest to get the level up to what we need as a society because there are these interconnections there are these second and third order consequences that you were just talking about Alexa for example about how data is sold and resold right um, that have implications that are go beyond sort of the private level interest. And therefore, we're not making these society-wide investment in cybersecurity that we should. So, for example, one of the things that we actually should be driving toward, um, I think, is a much better sort of baseline set of what do we expect different types of companies, what do we expect of their cybersecurity, Right. You can call that like the a typical term for that is a standard of care, right? What is the standard of care? Um, and the reason that that's important is because companies right now don't know what standard they're going to be held to. Yes, absolutely. We do not want to punish the victim of a cybercrime. But on the other hand, if you actually stored your belongings in one of those you store it, you know, locations and they said, you know, we come and pick up your stuff and we store it securely and we'll bring it back to you. But it actually turns out that they have, you know, no locks, no cameras, no fences, no nothing in the way of security. And somebody broke in and stole your stuff. Yes, of course, the police should go after the people who broke in and stole things. But you might actually also say, hey, guys, you weren't actually meeting the standard of care for what you said you were providing. And it's right? even That's it's even a little bit worse, right? Because right. in in this case, it may not be just that they steal your data and make off of it. They may then camp out in the you store it space and and infect a whole bunch of other and infect a whole bunch of other companies as well. Yes, absolutely. And so that's why I think the of course the analogy is not perfect, but I think the you know it's setting those levels of expectations so that companies know what standard they're being held to, and so therefore know like when. They it makes them much more comfortable with sort of incident reporting and other things. Yes. 
you know, to your point, Alexa, about the data, like, do we want to start thinking about, you know, just as we have know your customer requirements for banks, do we want to have know your customer requirements for data purchasers, right? Yes. Um, you know, that's, um, I don't know that that would work. That's not my area of expertise, but those are the kinds of policy debates we should be having um, and as a way of trying to figure out how to live with the results of this digital world. Um, I, I think the thing that we that I come back around to in this space is one of our challenges is that a lot of the things, the way that cyberspace works, right, is different than the the physical world. And so by moving from an analog to a digital world, you change the threat profile in ways that are people don't think about. The classic example of this is actually from the US government. So the um, many of your listeners will probably remember the uh, 2015 OPM um, incident where the uh, a malicious actor intruded into the Office of Personnel Management System and stole the background investigation materials for something on the order of 20-something million um, Americans. When you think about that, all those records used to be analog, meaning right. they were on paper. Right. And, you know, can you imagine, like, the Russian clothes? Like, <laughs> yeah, I mean, like, the, what were they going to do? Back the semi up to the cave where these records were stored and stand there at the mimeograph machine, right. <laughs> like the purple dye, and like, you know, yeah. turn the crank and, you know, like, no, of course not. They're not going to be able to do that. You can't scale that, right? Right. But by digitizing them, it made it really easy to, it made it really easy to access, made it really easy yes. to access for the good guys, but it also made it really easy to access and move for the bad guys. And so we didn't fully think through what this change from analog to digital meant for Correct. those records. We need to do that. We need to do that all over the place in this new digital ecosystem that we all now live in, as you said, much of our day. Right. I mean, it clearly is a shift in thinking, whereas previously we just thought of, you know, units or stovepipes. Now, as you said, it's not just, okay, know your customer one leg back. It really is really know your ecosystem, everybody that you are interacting with, your customer, your suppliers, your supply chain, all of those have a huge impact. Yeah, no, definitely. And all of that is, and it's going to continue to evolve, right? As the technologies continue to evolve, as we add new technologies, um, as we increase the computing power, as we increase the you know capabilities of the machines that we're that we're dealing with, all of these trends are only going to accelerate. Yeah, your point about the the moving to digital really struck a chord, and and it occurs to me that more subtle attacks than just stealing the data are possible, right? Like going in and changing small amounts of data in places that will confound people who are referencing that data unless it's understood that the data has been modified. So I'm thinking in terms of, you know, if you really wanted to end somebody's career, you could go back and and mess with some of the background data, for instance. Um, but I'm I'm gonna <laughs> stop stop that thought tra train there and and back up a little and say, for all of this activity that's going on, 
how much of it is visible to somebody? Like, do we know more about who the actors are and what they're doing? And is the problem that we're unable to act because it's not necessarily all within one jurisdiction? Or do we just, are we just unable to track it all? So I, the answer to that question is somewhat complex, I think. Um, the, so first of all, I think there's, there's not as good an understanding as we should have of this criminal ecosystem. And so one of the projects that I'm involved with, uh, that the Cyber Threat Alliance is involved with, that several other groups are working through the World Economic Forum Center for Cybersecurity and the Partnership Against Cybercrime, is to actually undertake what we call the ATLAS project. Um, and the ATLAS project is designed to map out and create much better shared views of the criminal ecosystem. And the reason we think this is important is because we think scale on the internet confounds our understanding of what's going on. Because any beat cop will tell you that the same four miscreants tend to cause about 80% of the crime in a given neighborhood, right? That the, I mean, and I'm sort of exaggerating there a little bit, but there's a set of actors that tend to cause most of the malicious activity. There's a reason why there's the old saw about round up the usual suspects, um, because it turns out that usually the usual suspects are the ones that are behind or at least are connected to what's um, what's going on. So there's this interesting question of exactly how big and how broad is this criminal ecosystem? How many actors are we actually talking about? Um, how many different groups really are there? And so we need to develop a much better understanding of that. Now, here's the thing. Your first part of your question was, how much visibility do we have? I think we have a lot more visibility than we realize because we actually haven't correlated that visibility. Um, we haven't put together the pieces in a way that allows us to actually see the broader picture um, and that we've got actually a lot more of the puzzle piece. Some of the puzzle pieces are missing. Um, or they're hidden. They really are hidden from, from broader, broader view. But I think we've got a lot more of the puzzle than we realize. And if we actually are able to put more of this together, for example, through the Atlas Project and through other kinds of partnerships, it will give us a much better ability to understand and target and ultimately have governments disrupt that criminal, uh, that criminal ecosystem. And the reason I keep coming back to the criminal ecosystem is because for all of the activity of the nation states out there, the vast, vast, vast majority of malicious activity online is criminal. And for most organizations, people, and that sort of thing, you're far more likely to run into one of those criminal groups than you are the Russians or the Chinese intelligence. Now, it's different if you're in the defense industrial base, if you're a, you know, sort of high-end pharmaceutical company or something, you know, you got a journalist, you got a different threat profile. But for most people, you know, crime is actually, cybercrime is actually far a far bigger problem. And so I think we also need to, you know, allocate our resources with that understanding. So that's the other reason why I keep coming back to the cybercrime issue. It's not that the nation state activity is not important. It, it, it most assuredly is. It's just that we, we also need to make sure that we're really trying to, under, you know, trying to combat that cybercrime piece. 
And the cybercrime piece is clearly, clearly causing, you know, a lot of the disruption and economic dis- disruption. And, and I have to think that it's also um, causing a lot of noise, right? I mean, uh, as you're looking at the signals, as you're looking at the different t- tracking, the different activities online, if you could abstract out that noise, it might be harder for the uh, nation states to be visible and to, to be invisible rather and, and attacking. Absolutely. I mean, they hide in that noise. Right. And they make use of the criminal tools because if the criminal tools work, why burn, you know, why burn your tool or use something that could actually identify you? I mean, just keep using the the criminal stuff. So to the extent that we can, you know, reduce the effectiveness of criminal tools, reduce the amount of noise in the system, it gives the nation states fewer places to hide. Never. Yep. You've uh, worked to facilitate partnerships between government and private sector, presumably to to give more transparency and a wider breadth of coverage of the the various data um, so we can at least understand the situation about a particular threat. Um, There's been a lot of talk lately about collaboration between the government and the private sector, even between the various... um, Uh, parties in the private sector. But Leslie mentioned something which has really blunted some of the, or made harder some of the collaboration, which is the various jurisdictional differences. So we still have to deal with sometimes analog laws in trying to collaborate with one another across borders to solve a a cybercrime. In your view and in your experience, what are some of the biggest barriers to the defenders, if you will, in being able to collaborate with one another internationally. You hit on a few of them right there, Alexa. The The jurisdictional mismatch is really large, right? Because the, um, you know, the U.S. government, for as broad and as big as it is, only has jurisdiction over territory that is the U.S., right? Whereas most cybersecurity companies span multiple multiple countries they work in multiple jurisdictions and they have customers and they have visibility from various places around the world and so that jurisdictional mismatch is certainly a big problem most of our international treaties when it comes to um when it comes to crime and things like that are governed by mutual legal assistance treaties and these are you know many of them were were well they use pretty much 20th century technology to enforce 19th century treaties that were based on 17th century, you know, ideas, right? And so not surprisingly, they're not terribly flexible or adapted to the 21st century world. And so we are in the process of working this out. And in fact, actually just this, just recently, um, within the last month or so, we have seen the the deal, a better deal between the U.S. and the U.K. go into effect in terms of how each law enforcement in each country can access and make requests of private sector companies in the other country's jurisdiction. Um, And that's a big step forward um, for um, being able to be more responsive, be more adaptive to this environment. And, but it's hard, right? Because there are different definitions of crime in different jurisdictions. In fact, large chunks of what China and Russia call crime, we call free speech. 
And so, um, you know, those those kinds of issues are going to continue to uh, going to continue to plague us. There are other issues, of course, too, um, which are that, you know, uh, cybersecurity companies are in the business of making money. They are for profit entities and governments have a different mission. And so there is a mission mismatch, if you will, um, between those uh, two as well. So when you add mission mismatch um, to the jurisdictional mismatch, you end up with a large barrier to that kind of collaboration. Yeah. So I I think that there's two separate things that you're sort of alluding to. Uh, One is what are the right mechanisms to allow one jurisdiction's uh, law enforcement agencies to act in others, or at least get information from others? And separately, what are the possibilities of having um, aligned uh, laws in different jurisdictions? Um, and I mean, the the China-Russia example over free speech is a good one. But I mean, even closer to home, notions of privacy and, and what should be respected are very different in Europe versus North America. Um, so what hope do you have that we might, you know, at appropriate levels for solving cybercrime, uh, find find ways to agree on what what is criminal activity and how to pursue it in different jurisdictions? Yeah, I mean, I think there are there's definitely the possibility, right, because there are certain things that are there are certain activities that every almost everyone agrees are malicious, right? Like theft of like outright theft of money. Right. You know, going in and stealing money from bank accounts. There are things that everyone agrees that, you know, damaging critical infrastructure systems, ransomware attacks, like nobody says those are okay. So there are a set of activities that you can start from to build the cooperation upon. And there's probably a set of activities that we're going to have to say, look, we are never going to reach, you know, agreement, we might be able to get some broader agreement among some like-minded nations so that it's larger than just the U.S., for example. But, you know, there's just going to be these varying gradations in there. And that's just something we're going to have to, you know, we're going to have to live with, we're going to have to um, have to acknowledge. And I think that's just something that we're going to have to manage um, as we as we go forward. Biden administration recently set up an office of cyber diplomacy and the Senate, I think about two weeks ago, confirmed Nathaniel Fink to head that office. A lot of the treaties that you were talking about, these are the 20th century treaties that were you know, being applied to armaments and nuclear um, threats. It sounds like this office is really going to be looking at how to work with like-minded nations in creating cyber diplomacy, perhaps, or or cyber treaties that help us uh, coordinate with one another against threats that we all face. Is that your understanding as well? Yes. I mean, the so this is sort of making permanent and bigger. um, And, you know, the cybersecurity coordinator position within the State Department that existed during the Um, the Obama administration. And it really reflects the fact that cybersecurity, cyber-related issues are now nation-state level issues. They're inter-nation-state level issues, right, that are matters of diplomacy. And just as you wanted experts in arms control for the 20th century, you want some experts at State Department 
for diplomacy that are experts in cybersecurity because it is such a major issue for um, international affairs. As you noted, almost every nation state on the planet has figured out that carrying out activities in cyberspace provides a great deal of benefits for them, whether it's espionage activities or military activities or law enforcement or just, you know, they can help pursue their foreign policy and national security goals. And so, you know, it's critical that you have an element of the State Department that is dedicated in this space. Um, and so I'm really glad that we have codified this office, that we have a Senate-confirmed um, leader there that, um, and I think it will really help uh, U.S. leadership um, around the world in this uh, in this area. And there are a lot of issues that, not just treaties, but internet governance questions of like, how do we manage this global shared internet? Are we going to let it splinter into a bunch of different, you know, only vaguely connected networks? Are, how are we going to manage that? Yes. Um, how are we going to manage these privacy issues? You know, um, how are we going to manage other technology issues, right? As they, as new technologies emerge, right? All of these things can help, are the subject of international negotiations and therefore the State Department needs to be playing a role in them. Yeah, I think that's an ongoing challenge, how to do internet governance in a way that allows the internet to continue to be the border crossing innovative uh, tool that it actually has been uh, at the same time as respecting individual countries' sovereign rights to manage, you know, their the safety of their of their citizens. Um, and, and I'm not sure, I'm not sure in the sort of 20 years, this has been a hot button item. I'm not really sure that we figured out how to do the level of coordination in, in, you know, legal management, like we were talking about just a few moments ago, uh, in a way that isn't going to be kind of like 17th century approach to lawmaking <laughs> applied to a 21st century technology. Not that I'm, you know, pessimistic, but, um, <laughs> Yeah, I mean, I think also that we should keep perspective in the sense that, and I remind people of this, that like, you know, for all that the technology has rapidly penetrated our lives and things, my middle schooler is still older than the iPhone, right? Like, you know, that's still a relatively new technology um, yeah. that, you know, uh, I'm still older than the World Wide Web, right? You know, like the these things didn't exist when I was in, you know, when I was in high school and even college. Like I didn't start using email until I was in graduate school, you know. And yes, I'm by my kids, you know, accounting, I'm old. But in the grand scheme of things, I'm not that old, right? So, you know, these technologies are still relatively new. And I don't think it should, and they're very disruptive, right? This is not... And these are not evolutionary changes that we've seen. These are revolutionary changes in how the and how we interact with the world. And so I don't think it's to surprise people that we're struggling from a policy standpoint for how to move forward, right? That we had we've had hundreds of years of the Westphalian sort of nation state to try to start working out ways to manage conflict between those, right? And we still don't necessarily do a great job. That lends to your pessimism, Leslie. But, you know, 
we have developed mechanisms over time to help manage those conflicts, but they took a long time to develop. And so I don't think anybody should be surprised that it's going to take us some time in cyberspace as well. For all the speed that technology moves, people's brains only still move at a certain speed. You had mentioned disruption uh, earlier, and that's actually a very interesting topic of conversation right now in government circles and cybersecurity circles, which is how do we actually disincentivize these criminal gangs? Because if we're just constantly in this defensive mode, all we're doing is we're just doing the whack-a-mole. So how do we actually disrupt them? And that's my question to you. What have you found to be the most effective way to disrupt cyber criminal activity, particularly when it is a nation state, because it's, you know, their pockets are very full and they have the timeline, they can wait, um, maybe unlike a profit oriented criminal gang. So I think that you're going to have to have different strategies to deal with the criminals versus the nation states versus the hacktivists. Um, because their motivations are very different. As you noted, their timelines are very different. If you're a criminal, like time is money, just like it is for a business, right? You cannot afford to like stand there and continuously bang on a given organization and try to figure out, you're not going to spend six months trying to figure out how to get in there. Yeah. It's not. Nation state espionage unit might do that. Um, because they've got a different incentive structure, they've got different motivations. And so how you deal with one versus the other is very important. I think for the cyber criminals, um, a large part of the disruption has to be figuring out, I go back to that map, the, the mapping idea that I was talking about, like, where are the nodes? Where are their vulnerabilities in that system? Oh, hmm, look at that. Turns out there's actually you know, three suppliers of most of the malware for 80% of these gangs over here. Well, guess I can know where we're going to go spend some time trying to focus on, right? Oh, look at this. It turns out these same five bulletproof hosters are providing 85% of the infrastructure for, you know, all of these activities. Guess we need to, guess we now know where we're going to go put some effort on. Oh, and why the heck are these all in Brazil or Switzerland or whatever. Let's go have a conversation with those governments about why they're tolerating this kind of um, and facilitating this kind of activity. Um, now we're back to the State Department point, right? You know, the um, I think the where we want to be looking in that criminal space is where can we cause maximum decrease in profits, if you will? Where can we do that? Where are they going to force them to spend additional money? Yes, if we disrupt their infrastructure, are they going to rebuild it? Sure. But all the time that they're spending rebuilding their infrastructure, they're not robbing people or stealing information or doing other malicious things, right? So it's all about sort of decreasing that return on the investment and making it harder um, and increasing the risk of exposure for them. The, you know, for the nation states, it really is about how much can you slow them down? Um, we are never going to get rid of espionage um, online. We Espionage has existed for millennia um, and will continue to exist. Every nation conducts espionage, um, and we're not going to change that. What we can do is make it more difficult, right? We want them to have to expend more effort per unit of intelligence gained 
right? Because they still only have 24 hours in a day. Um, and we want to make them expend more effort to get the same level of intelligence so that they get less of it um, and their picture is less complete. Um, and so I think that, um, and there are various ways you could do that, right? And the other piece of this is developing those for the nation states, it's developing those norms of behavior, yes. right? And developing those constraints that say that responsible nations do not harbor cyber criminals, do not knowingly harbor cyber criminals, right? That nation states do not conduct operations to, you know, mess with elections in other countries, um, that nation states don't you know, blow up critical infrastructure during peacetime, right? You know, working on those kinds of constraints and reaching those agreements. And of course, there are always going to be countries that violate those. But you make those few and far between and you you make it so that they pay a price for, you know, conducting that. Uh, they pay a diplomatic price, an economic price for actually conducting that, um, that activity. Um, none of this is ever going to be perfect. But I think it can be better than it is now. Yeah, it's funny. You're talking to two uh, folks who were old Internet governance um, geeks from a long time ago. I guess that's where we started. And when you mentioned, you know, the splintering of the Internet and um, how what is the future of the Internet? Those are that's really intertwined with a lot of the ideas that you're talking about now, which is how do we it, it's a if it's splintered up it makes the collaboration a lot harder because there's different rules that are being um applied perhaps in china and russia versus everything else um but where i wanted to go was on um this whole idea of disruption pulling that thread a little bit the there's a lot of these criminal gangs um are have this quasi, you know, official relationship with the nation state. In other words, they're not entirely in the employment of the nation state. The nation state almost uses them like a mercenary. This is a case in Russia, for example. So they still have to get paid. And um, disrupting the money flow to, to, to them would certainly help. Um, what do you, what do you think about, um, money laundering laws and how those can be maybe tweaked or really applied to these criminal gangs that are being paid by nation states, but then are also paying with that money, with that laundered money for services in, 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 in our nation states. Yes. I think the, that disrupting the money flows definitely has to be a part of it, right? Yeah. The, because that's for the bottom, the bottom line is for these criminal organizations, they are about money. That right. is what is motivating them. I mean, yeah, some of them may be patriotic hackers, but at the end of the day, they're, they're about the money. Um, and the putting constraints on that, just, you know, um, preventing some of that money from flowing and making it harder for, and again, you're working at, make him work at it, right? Um, the, uh, make it harder for them to move the money around. Like, I think that is, you know, those things are are intertwined. And ironically, I think that some of the, you know, some of the advances and some of the 
changes that have come about in the international financial system as a result of cryptocurrencies actually in some ways bring more transparency to mm -hmm. some of the transactions. And, you know, in some ways make it harder to hide transactions. I mean, the whole point of the blockchain is that it has to be public, right? In order for it to be secure, it has to be widely available. Like that's the whole like idea behind it. Um, and so for a lot of cryptocurrency, ex cryptocurrency, you know, transactions, those have to be public. That is something the good guys can actually use to their advantage. Um, and so I think we need to explore some of those, you know, some of those ramifications where, you know, at one level, yes, there's greater anonymity, but at another level, there's actually greater transparency um, and explore how we can actually use that to our advantage. Yeah, you know, as you were describing the follow the money and, and disrupt the money flow, I, I couldn't help thinking that, yeah, we tried that with the war on drugs and look where that's gotten us, uh, which is a lot more drugs and a lot more fighting and whatnot. But I think I think your point about the transparency kind of answers that question, doesn't it? We're, we're moving from an era of mysterious Swiss banks uh, to open openness and transparency in, in cryptocurrency. So hopefully that will help us not have the same kind of reverse traction uh in in disrupting that money flow yeah um but the but i mean clearly there's a lot more that we could talk about here um but we were sadly running out of time um i think that we've covered a number of things that can be done to try to disrupt this space in terms of what law enforcement can do in terms of what governments can do and and in terms of what individuals and businesses can do which is remember that cybersecurity is not just about you it's also about everybody else um any final thoughts of, of things that you would like to leave our listeners with so what i often tell people is this problem can seem overwhelming because it is so big um and it is vast and you have people like me, like you, that spend their time, that spend their lives working on this, right? And so it can seem like really daunting. But the thing that I always want to leave people with is it, it, it is possible to make yourself safer online. And it is possible for us as societies to become more secure. We will never achieve 100% security any more than you could achieve 100% guarantee that a natural disaster will never strike your house right? Nobody can give you that kind of guarantee. But just like you can take steps to better protect yourself physically, you can reduce the, you know, the risk of a natural disaster affecting you. You can do things that make yourself safer online, materially safer online, you and your organization. Um, and so I never want people to think that it's so overwhelming that they can't do anything, that you have agency and you can make yourself safer. Um, and I think that's a really important message for people to uh, to receive and to not become fatalistic about the the issue. Thank you so much. You're quite welcome. Thank you for having me. Thank you so much for joining us. Thanks for listening to this Tech Sequences podcast. We are Leslie Daigle and Alexa Rod. You can reach us by email, techsequences at techsequences.org. We'd love to hear from you to know what you thought about this episode or ideas for future episodes. Tech Sequences. Follow us on Twitter and Facebook and subscribe through your favorite podcasting service.